Okay, if you're, if you're hearing this, it means that you have delved back into the early episodes of the show. And whilst we really appreciate that, we just want to give a, I guess, a little disclaimer, Mateus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the early episodes, I was editing this whole thing on a very amateur platform, and we basically just recorded a Zoom call. So um, that's why the quality isn't, you know, awesome. Yeah, we, we didn't have proper microphones. We didn't have proper headphones. But thankfully, it's grown grown into something that's, that's fairly successful now. We were able to have proper equipment and hire people to take care of all that pesky um, audio side of things. But we just wanted to put this out there and let people know that if if you do check out the early episodes and the sound quality isn't perfect, which we know it isn't, please just jump ahead and listen to some of those layer episodes. I don't know if you've got a couple that you particularly like that people can start on, Matthias. Oh, I mean, some of my favorites are, of course, uh, the Howl episodes we did with the Ed Gamester or um, uh, the talks that we had with uh, Shane as well. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we've got fan favorites like Ina Selvik and all of Highland who joined us for an episode. Um, and Lisa Gedalia was one of my personal favorites. Yes, and Terry Gunnell as well has some very interesting talks with some really high-profile professors. So go check him out. And now we're just dropping names. Now we're just dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank you for, for starting out of the early episodes. And please do listen to them. We, you know, we put, still put a lot of love and effort into them. But you do have to bear with us on the on the audio side of things. It does get better as you go through the episodes. And, and I guess it's quite a... Some people enjoy seeing us go through that motion and go from amateur to a little less amateur, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the uh, Nordic Mythology podcast. Um, my name is Daniel Farrand. I am the owner of the Kune Horns of Odin, and I'm joined by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Um, if you want to say a little bit about your background. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, I'm Dr. Matthias Nordvig. I, I am an expert in uh, pre-Christian Scandinavian mythology and religion at the University of Colorado Boulder. I teach uh, courses on Nordic mythology, folk tales from Scandinavia, the Viking Age and um, a lot of other stuff about the northern world in different ways. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so the, the podcast is going to be a long-form conversation. It's it's going to be based on a different, different subject each week rather than kind of like a linear telling of the different sagas and the different you know stories and and of the poems, we're going to kind of pick a subject and just kind of dissect and have a have an open conversation about it and see what we can see what we can learn. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. I think it's going to be really really cool, and um, I hope also you listeners are going to uh, be enjoying it. Yeah, I think it's something that as a as a podcast listener and it's definitely somebody that's. There's interest in Norse mythology, but not always known where to find things and always had access to kind of asking the questions to somebody who 
is a true expert, kind of, you know, does this day in, day out, teaches it. I think that's going to be a valuable thing, especially as we go down the line and get get people asking their own questions and, and having those sections in. And it's just something I think that's different to what's out there at the minute, as most podcasts tend to be a, a just a straight retelling of, of the scriptures that we that we kind of have. Yeah, I think it can be really problematic uh, for for people who don't know where where to go to look for um, interpretations, for instance, or explanations for for uh, different things in the mythology. It can be really hard to you know connect these things in different ways. So yeah, we're we're definitely forging ahead with a with a new thing. <laughs> that's it. That's it exactly. I think like we were saying just before we started recording how. Everything is such a gray area. A lot of things aren't kind of like a nailed on, you know, a hundred percent. This is exactly what this meant, or this is where this came from. That that even adds even more ambiguity to people who who want to try and learn. You kind of just left. I don't know. Certainly, when I was trying to learn, or still am learning, was kind of just left in this in this minefield of what's right, what's wrong. How do I say this? How do I say that? Yeah, and it was just. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it can be really difficult, and and yeah, one of the interesting things is also that the reason that there's a almost five hundred years of scholarship on Nordic mythology is this ambiguity. Like, just think about that for five hundred years, scholars in Scandinavia and elsewhere have been sitting around poring over these texts, trying to figure out what is actually going on and and what is real and what is not. And so much of it is fiction, of course, in different ways, but so much of it is also reality. So you have you have this long tradition of people arguing over this material. And and you also see this in in like in the broad uh, population um, who aren't necessarily scholars, people who pick up on some kind of idea that was uh, presented by a scholar at some point, that's usually the case. And then, um, then that becomes their truth, so to speak. And, and yeah, as you say, the, the, the most important lesson I think is that, uh, well, this, there is not one single um, sort of uh, fact to be said about so much of this. The, the reality is basically that uh, old Norse mythology was written down uh, two to three hundred years after uh, people had converted to Christianity in, in Iceland, for instance, um, and also in Scandinavia. And the people who are writing this down, they, are, they have, on the one hand, their traditional material, uh, stuff that comes from oral tales that were told in families and in communities. Um, they have some visual imagery here and there, carvings, maybe ancient artifacts at this point, like um, what we see in the sagas uh, is often like they mention shields, tapestries and such that have imagery from Nordic mythology. Some of that stuff could still be available in the early uh, 13th century. And, and then, of course, we have the rune stones and picture stones that are still standing around in the Scandinavian landscape. And that's part of, you know, their imagination. And so... You, then you have the introduction of literature. Uh, Scandinavians learn how to write books, basically, in this period, too, from when they convert to Christianity and then into the 13th century. That's where literature becomes a thing. And 
we have these monks and in some cases also lay people like uh, Snorri Sturluson who wrote uh, the Edda, um, our best exposition on Nordic mythology. He wasn't he wasn't a, a, a part of the Christian clergy. He was a Christian, of course. He was a chieftain, but he's sort of like semi-learned. There's stuff that he's picked up from here and there. He knows a little bit of theology, a little bit of philosophy uh, from the Mediterranean. And then he knows all of these traditional stories that he's writing down. And all of that stuff gets mixed up in literature. And and that's what we have now as as modern people when we try to figure out, oh, what, what were these Vikings about? <laughs> so basically, I just shouldn't be ashamed of... Uh getting lost and confused and neither should should anybody else i guess there's oh absolutely not i mean scholars are too in a sense um we we might have a more you know structured confusion but nonetheless mm-hmm. it's confusion all around fair enough well um let's get into the first episode i guess yeah um so yeah so we're gonna discuss valkyries and shield maidens which is i think a pretty pretty good topic for the for the first show um Probably, I would say, let's start with with Valkyries and let's see kind of what we can learn and 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 go from there. Yeah. And um, so my yeah my first question is kind of linked between the Valkyries and Freya. So mm-hmm. a lot of people will see Freya as kind of like a goddess of the Valkyries, almost or. A, it's kind of like a, an overseen figure for the Valkyries. Now, is there any truth behind that, or is that kind of a, a more modern thing that's put in, or is it just there's, there's no basis to it at all? So this this um, this idea relies on on interpretations, um, and these interpretations aren't uh, so so. There's, it's not really specified as such that oh. She she is sort of the leader of the Valkyries or or something like that. Um, but what we do have in uh, the mythology is uh, indications of 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 some kind of relationship to the Valkyries. So just to go through the uh, what types of sources we have, we have Snorri Sturluson's Edda that I mentioned. It was written in 1220 approximately. Uh, it's a prose narrative that gives us a very ordered account of what Nordic mythology is. And then we have a compilation. We actually have two compilations, but the primary compilation of Eddic poetry, which is um, is a, 10 poems about the Nordic gods and then 29 poems about um, ancient Germanic heroes like Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. And um, so Freya when she's a figure in the mythology, is actually not that active. Um, we have uh, some poems uh, that uh, where she shows up sort of as a, as a secondary character. For instance, the story about uh, how the giant Thrymer uh, steals Thor's hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there she's, um, she's, she's brought into context because Thrymer wants to marry her. And then Thor goes to her and says, well, can you marry this giant so I can get my hammer back? <laughs> and she's like, no. <laughs> it seems and, to be a running theme that people want to marry her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she, she must have been a very beautiful lady. That's kind of like the, the thing I've picked up on is that everybody wants to marry Freya. 
yeah, she's she's one of those uh, those those females in in the Asia collective that the giants are constantly trying to to snatch, basically. <laughs> yeah. Sif is another one, Thor's wife, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, she is described as very uh, beautiful, um, but but in a story like that one, she just shows up like as a secondary character. She says no. And and then Thor has to dress up as Freya to go marry Dreamers, right? Yeah. That's the that's the funny part of the story. Uh, so she's not she's not that active. Um, she she's described as a, a goddess of love by uh, by Snorri, um, and and she um, she she's uh, she's got this uh, the the description that he gives of her is is more of like this noble lady who sits in her chamber kind of situation um not so much a a, a warrior figure or mm-hmm. or anything like that but we do seem to get some indications of her as as a warrior figure too we also have to consider that in the material there's a there's a structural relationship between freya and and other female figures where freya seems to sort of be the positive and the other female figures are the negative and a great example of this is the poem Hindluhliot, where um, Freya uh, she uh, uh, she wakes up this uh, troll woman called Hindla, which means little dog, and and then she asks her to recount the genealogy of this warrior or chieftain named Ottar that uh, has summoned her. And in that story, she calls Hindla her, her sister. So we see sort of a pairing here where, where Freya is sort of the um, positive figure and Hindla, who's described in very negative terms, um, is the negative one. So she might have had sort of a dual aspect. This might come down to um, these dual aspects of, of human emotions, uh, love and hate, for instance, that could be an underlying thing. And so if we see it in essence, yeah, Freya could then be associated with uh, anger and hate and, and warfare and death, of course, also. The interesting thing is, you know, Snorri gives us this description of the goddess Hell as um, a sort of flesh-colored on the one side and then uh, darkly colored as if she's uh, decomposing on the mm-hmm. other side. And that might actually be be that pairing of of the two female figures in a mythological sense, in 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 just hell as yeah. as the goddess of the underworld. So so there's definitely something going on in the mythology where we could say, yeah, Freya, she has a relationship to these things that we might otherwise fear, um, warfare and and such, um, death, but. Um, but to be the leader of the Valkyries, that, that, that might be a bit of a stretch, but it's not an, an unreasonable interpretation, if you ask me. Could that come from the fact that kind of like the dead is split between Valhalla and going to Freya? So you've kind of got that confusion almost to people who are, who are learning that, that not all the, you know, not all the dead that picked up by the Valkyries go to they kind of get you know the split half and half and mm-hmm. and that's something that, that may be attributed to you know to Freya having this 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 goddess of the Valkyries kind of the role. 
Absolutely. I mean, this it's interesting because um, it's it seems to be a very old idea that Odin takes one half of the slain and Freya takes the other one. This um, uh, comes from the mythological poetry, the Eddie poetry, and 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 it looks like it's an idea that that was in place before they were written down in that Christian literary context in the 13th century. So this might be something that people sort of believe. What it really signifies is, is hard to say, um, but this would give her that relationship to war and Odin as well. There are also indications that, that she might be Odin's lover. And, and what it kind of looks like is then that we have sort of the god of war, Odin, and, and he represents that male warrior who is fighting um, and that male warrior might have some kind of like poetic uh, love hate relationship to death. <laughs> and that's where Freya could come in as, as, as the mediator in a mythological sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit off topic, but is there any, what happens to the warriors that Freya takes that's a do good they, question. <laughs> we, do, do we know that? or Because obviously we, we all know that the, the, the warriors in Valhalla are away in Ragnarok. Do Freya's warriors join or do they kind of sit on the side? What do we... That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, we're just told that, uh, that she takes half of the slain and then they sit in her hall, Sesrimnir, which means... Uh, a, a place full of seats. So, what that really means, not entirely sure. <laughs> but, so, so we we have the the, the very vivid uh, descriptions of Valhurt, where we have Odin's warriors, the Einherja, yeah, who are the spirits of the uh, male warriors that have died in the battlefield. Those come from Snorri Sturluson, and a lot of it seems to be more of a construction. Than, than, okay. than an actual belief. It's not unlikely that back in Viking times, people had this idea that they would go and maybe live with the deity that, they, that their life pursuit, so to speak, related mostly to. And so a warrior might have had the idea that they would you know, reside with Odin when they died. That seems very likely. But then you have all the farmers. Where would they go? Maybe to Freyr's Hall. Um, could all, warriors also go to uh, Thor's Hall, possibly? And then Freya as well. And we have to uh, keep in mind that the story about Ragnarok and this idea that Odin is collecting warriors to fight um, evil in an apocalypse, it seems to be very... Uh, heavily infused with Christian ideas as well. So that could be something that shows up in back in the Viking Age where you know, Scandinavians are being uh, more influenced by Christian ideology, but it could also be something that the writers in, in the 13th century are putting into the material more than anything else. So, so we can't really know exactly um, if that division is uh, it was meaningful to a Viking back then. Maybe 
maybe a Viking back in the 800s thought that they would just go and hang out in Odin's Hall and, and not, you know, wait for Ragnarok or anything like that. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, from, from what I've kind of read and listened to, all the gods seem to have a very large hall. That's kind of like one of the things. Is it um, is it Thor's hall that has like over six hundred doors? Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly big place, so yeah. <laughs> it's not. I guess it's not far fetched to think that people did just assume that they would go and be with the god that they you know associated most with or felt cl- closest to. Yeah, and if we if we go to the archaeology and, and place name material in mainland Scandinavia, we have these little clusters um, of place names where you have a Thor place name over here, Odin place name over there, Freyr over there, and so on. And these are like uh, little uh, sort of like physical manifestations of cosmic or cosmological ideas that they had. Um, so, so you could easily imagine that... Um, that you have sort of a temple site in the middle, and then you have the abodes of the deities around it, and the people, the farmers, the warriors, uh, the um, uh, the traders, whoever they were living in that area, might have thought, "Oh, okay. Well, when I die, I get buried in a in a in a burial mound that's a you know in some relationship to um, a, the deity that uh, that is my primary warden." I mean, we do see. In broadly in the material, we see the tendency to think uh, that you can sort of be tied to one deity um, uh, only. I mean, they're they're polytheists. They believe in different deities. There, there are many deities, but they also seem to sometimes have like a very close personal relationship to just one or two. And so that might have been part of the way that people were thinking about their their gods back then. That I I am a person who is Austwiener, which means beloved friend of Odin, um, and so therefore I am of course going to hang out with him when I die. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the worst places to go when you die. I think so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, <laughs> this, the the idea of all that uh, uh, pork meat and and. Uh, and eternal flowing mead sounds great, right? <laughs> yeah, who, who wouldn't love that? Uh, so the next thing I wanted to, to ask was, with the Valkyries, I think it's a, a lot of people see it as they go and collect the people who have died in battle. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of it is that they actually construct the deaths of the people? Um, I know that there's some stories of where they... You know, the Valkyries are kind of sat and, you know, kind of almost gnawn-like where they, they, they're deciding the fate of the men in the battles and deciding who who mm-hmm. they kind of almost want to take to Valhalla rather than allowing the, you know, the, the events to kind of just take a natural flow and then pick up those yeah. who have fallen. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, what we see in the mythology is that Odin is principally uh, associated with the idea of uh, deciding who wins a battle. And the Valkyries seem to be his instruments in that context. But what we also see, like in the case of uh, Brynhildr in the story of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, is that she, uh, the reason that Sigurd uh, meets her 
is that she's sleeping in this uh, uh, castle uh, or great hall uh, that's surrounded by fire in in a in, in a uh, uh, sort of snow white sleep, eternal snow white sleep, where uh, Olden has placed her because she gave victory to the wrong um, king, I think it was, and so she was so she was basically punished <laughs> by Odin. And uh, whether that is a, um, uh, it's a common idea, I'm, I don't know. But we do find in the saga literature in general this uh, tendency. We see the Deesir can be these uh, females who uh, are carrying uh, armor and weaponry and are following a warrior around as sort of a representation of his fate. And this ties into the whole idea of like who creates fate. Is it um, is it Odin? Is it other deities? Or is fate a concept that is created by these female figures that we also call the Norns, right? So we have this huge mythical complex that includes Decia, Valkyries, Norns, and then possibly a god like Odin and maybe other gods too. And um, the females seem to be the ones who um, effectuate things. They execute uh, the situation. And uh, a great example of this is also um, um, the, uh, uh, the poem, Darrada Hyoth, which means uh, the spear song, where, where this is before the Battle of Malden in Ireland, where we have these three... Nortnir, uh, who are weaving the fates of men using uh, swords and uh, the entrails of humans as uh, as the cords, and I think the the weights that are holding down uh, the the uh, the threads are are human heads and and stuff like that. That's a very vivid image of mm-hmm. exactly that uh, process of female deities deciding your fate. And ultimately, of course, we see it in the poem Virusbal, um, the prophecy of the seer uh, in, in the beginning where it's said that the three Norns, they show up at the well um, underneath the, uh, the, the world tree Yggdrasit, and uh, there they decide uh, the fates of humans. So there's a general concept of, of these female figures deciding that. And the Valkyries might be uh, sort of those figures in a in specifically a war situation where they then show show up and and make that executive executive decision <laughs> on behalf of Odin. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you would you'd say that they kind of chose the people rather than I mean obviously the, the Vikings were very you know they were more, they were believers in fate with you saying about the, the norns as well like, they believed that, that when their day came, then when their day came it, it came and, and there was nothing they could do about it, nothing they could do to avoid it so i guess that kind of ties into to the valkyries being almost the chooser rather than just the collector mm-hmm. i think so i think there's a there's an aspect of them choosing and this of course then indicates that there's an idea that, that there's free will in a lot of places, so to speak, in a spiritual sense, 
or Odin has a, has a will, but then his Valkyries apparently also have a will, and that <laughs> complicates things sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess it does. <laughs> going back to Timonshuren in um, Brunhild, if they must have a sense of some free will, otherwise she wouldn't have been able to choose the wrong, the wrong king. Yeah. So and, there has to have been some kind of, you know, f- free choice for her to, unless yeah. the plan plan was always to lock her up in a in a tower. <laughs> that's that's the that's the good question, right? Because where where does that grand scheme plan start? <laughs> does it begin with Odin? Is there stuff he's not telling us? Um, does he trick people in that way? Like that? I don't know what you think about that, but. You know, that's a very unsympathetic trait, if you ask me. If he's like, yeah, Valkyrie, you're working for me. You should go do this. Oh, I planned it so that that didn't happen. So <laughs> now it. I put you, yeah. hmm, That's convoluted, man. <laughs> but, you know, we see this in other mythologies, too. We see it in, um, in Greek mythology where um, Cupid's arrows sometimes uh, miss their target and, and go in another direction. And then you have some kind of calamity. And this is, of course, the way that, uh, you know, people are explaining uh, these mishaps. Um, as human beings, we, um, we love to narrativize our world and our lifespan, right? We love to put in a plot. This is how we make sense of our world. We, we, we infer a plot in, in our life, and that's how our life makes meaning. Um, but if you look at it uh, sort of like... Uh, outside of the human context, we're, there, there might not be that much meaning to it if you just look at all of these events as, uh, as uh, uh, unrelated events. We are the ones who, who plot everything into a narrative that makes sense for us. And that's what mythology does too, right? Mythology is, uh, is the primary narrative that humans are, are working with to make wor- uh, sense of their world. And so that's why also there are so many inconsistencies in myth, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, as, as well, I guess if everything, it wasn't as if everything was written down at one time and then there was one single literature that, that was passed amongst everybody and it was, this is how we do things. Yeah. Read this, follow this. It's, it's a case of, you know, different regions all kind of having the, I mean, for a lot of the Vikings, they weren't under a lot of like Norway or Denmark wasn't under a single ruler, let alone a single kind of ideology. So different regions will have had their own different interpretations and slight differences, and we do this this way. So it's kind of hard to put it all together and and, and get yeah. one single, single there was, sort of Yeah, there are so many different uh, brains involved. That's really the case, right? Um, in a in a scholarly context, we talk about geographical variation, social status variation, psychological uh, variation, and so on and so on and so on. We we see this today too. Uh, people have different ways of relating to religion, whether they're Christian, Muslim, uh, neo pagans, um, uh, traditional Hindus, and so on. Right. Uh, we have the people who are very intent on on the idea of a, of, for instance, Christianity being a 
a, a narrative for the world, a world drama, right, that uh, is going to end in an apocalypse. And then we have people who consider Christianity a philosophy that they can use in their life and they're not particularly uh, invested in, in, in the story of a, an apocalypse or Jesus' second coming and all that stuff. Uh, but they use Jesus' stories as, as examples that they can use in their life, right? So that's how, that's how mythology and religion always works. You have these different types of mentalities that are working with it. And you then have, you know, in a ge geographical context, you have one region where a predominant way of seeing things um, is more widespread, and then another uh, way of seeing things is is more widespread uh, in another location. And that's really where we come back to the literary aspect of all of this, because then you have guys like Snorri Sturluson in the 13th century trying to make sense of all of the stuff that he knows mm -hmm. from this uh, vague tradition, this pool of knowledge that that circulates in in oral stories. Yeah, so he's trying to take everything and then kind of make one linear piece out of it, which is almost an impossible task. So there's no no wonder that there's some sort of controversy around some of it, and you know it's not conflicting and it's not kind of yeah, and that's the, that's the, you know it's the same way as we we usually say that the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the road to hell in this context is paved with uh, attempts to systematize. <laughs> yeah, and and that's also why we see because we have to consider the sort of the the temporal span of of the creation of these stories too. We have Snorri Sturluson, he writes about the mythology in the uh, early 13th century. Uh, we have uh, the creation of uh, Sigurd the Dragonslayer's saga later than that. Of course, it's based off of uh, poems that exist when Snorri Sturluson is writing. He's also writing his own version. Mm -hmm. He includes a version of, of Sigurd the Dragonslayer in, in the Edda. And, and we have the Eddic poetry that seems to be very old in, in many ways. Um, and then we have the original story that was probably created around the 500s, right? Um, as added to that, we have all the picture material when we're looking at this story. Actually, the story of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer is the best example of how this works. Because we can see in the uh, Swedish Ramsund uh, runestone, which is this huge, beautiful uh, carving in, in, uh, in the Upland area in Sweden, uh, we have most most of the components of the story about how Sigurd slays the dragon Fafnir, how he gets the gold, how he's tricked by uh, his foster father Regin, and uh, and how he learns the language of birds from from tasting the blood of the dragon. All of that stuff is included in the image that is carved there. It is the biggest runic carving in the world. It's awesome, and I will recommend anybody to go see it. Um, and then you have, you know, then you have these uh, written stories in Iceland from the 13th century. The carving uh, in Ramsun is from around the year thousand, and and you can see how these um, uh, the poetry and the prose saga, both uh, both uh, versions include these components of his myth. So that's, that's the story that's being told and has survived into being written down. And 
we can also find the same components in uh, the Nivelungen lead from Germany, and we can find it in ballads uh, from much later in, in Denmark. We can find it in, uh, in the, um, the carvings on the state church in, uh, in Norway, and so on and so on. So that's what we can basically see then. If we have all of the, this material, we can see, oh, here's the core of the myth. And then we can look at the literature that is written about it. And then we can see what it adds in different ways. And that's how, that's how all of these stories have worked, right? And that's why you get, you know, uh, sort of a, we can talk about a semantic center for um, God like Odin. Um, he's a God of war. He's a God of poetry. He's a God of wisdom. Those things won't change. If they do, then somebody is messing with the tradition. Um, so, so that means that Odin can never be stupid in a story that doesn't fit with the semantic center. The same thing with uh, Thor. He's a very masculine figure. Um, so he's supposed to be masculine all the time, which means then that when he dresses up as Freya, we're messing with his masculinity, <laughs> which also yeah. tells you that the, these guys were playing around with the stuff sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and I guess. Yeah, oh, no. yeah. And that just tells us then that, um, that we have a semantic center for Valkyries too. Valkyries are uh, in charge of fate for warriors, but they can act in different ways depending on what tradition is treating them. And that's how that works. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess with a lot of like the, the stories, because they weren't being written down, a lot of them kind of, you almost will get like a, a, a what's the old, the old game? In England, we call it Chinese whispers. I'm not sure if, if you have a different way. You start with one story and mm -hmm. it gets passed through the different people. You yes. end up with something completely different. And if you've got, you know, most of these stories were probably told around the fire or for entertainment. And if you get people add their own little bits as they go along and then that is told by somebody else or, or the parts that they remember and then they fill in the gaps and, and so on and so forth. So you end up with these wildly diff, you know, they've got ultimately the same basic principle to the story, but the, the kind of filler in between is, is different. Yes, exactly. We know that Sigurd, the dragon slayer, he's supposed to kill the dragon and get the gold and then get the princess and the kingdom, and then he's supposed to die horribly, tragically death. That's how that works, right? <laughs> and then we have these stock scenes, the things that we can remember, um, because they're formulaic. They... They, they are put together in a very memorable way. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we use. And then we, we can reuse those patterns over and over. That's why you get the repetition of patterns in the saga literature. Um, a, a hero like Egil Skatlakrimson, right? He, uh, if you read his saga, you, you can see how, um, well, his, um, his uncle was named Thorolver. He was very successful and and uh, worked for the Norwegian king. But then he was uh, eventually um, uh, tricked and, um, and, uh, and it fell out of favor with the king. And then he was killed and his stuff was taken. Eir has a brother too who's named Thorolver, who also dies in context of a king. So the, the, the formula is that a king is responsible for the death of a guy named Thorolver in Eir's family. And then we have that 
uh, scene uh, or that, that situation parallel twice in the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of other examples in, in Ian's saga. There's also the uh, the axe that uh, Eric Bloodaxe sends to uh, Skata Kramer, Ian's father. Um, it's adorned and it's very nice. And then he uh, ends up putting it um, in, I think it's in the smithy, so that it gets all uh, sooted up and and ugly. And again, later on in the story, we have a very nice adorned shield that uh, the poet Aina Skaulagam gives to Aeth. And then it ends up also uh, looking pretty messy uh, because Aeth hangs it on the wall somewhere. And so that's, again, a pairing of, of a formula that, that, that keeps showing up. The shield thing, too. We, the, the oral tradition remembers that Aeos is supposed to get a shield but from somebody that, again, has a relationship to a Norwegian king. And so that happens twice, right? So that's how those stories work. And that's how we can also see the written material rests on an oral tra- tradition that's much older. And um, that's also why so many of the myths, when you look at the structure in Nordic mythology, uh, it's kind of the same thing that's happening again and again. Thor always goes out and fights a giant somewhere and then comes back again, right? Just a basic folktale pattern. Yeah. Typical Thor. Yeah, exactly. That's what he's supposed to do. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Should we try and tackle shield maidens? This is something I'm pretty excited to talk about. I know there's, I don't know, hopefully it's not going to split opinions and, and, you know, but it's one of those things that I think I'd certainly like to know how much truth there is, how much fact there is, how much evidence there is to you know to to the being female warriors. I think it's from popular culture. I think it's almost just accepted without doubt now that there were females that fought alongside the men, and it's kind of like I think on on you know on a on a common level that is just. Well, most people, it just I think, they just genuinely assume is true. Mm-hmm. Now, I think when you start to look into it, that's not necessarily the case. Mm. And I'd like to see what we can if we yeah. come, up to, come to an answer. I don't know if we're, how, so, you know. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a it's an interesting subject because it's it's one of those uh, areas where we are very iffy on the actual history, and aside from that. Uh, especially nowadays with all the gender debates and all that stuff, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it too. And if they find stuff that doesn't agree with their opinion, then then sometimes what we see is that people get even more uh, contentious about it. But the facts are um, uh, that for a long time, we have known these stories from um, uh, from from the saga literature and especially the type of sagas uh, that are commonly called the legendary sagas in English, that would be uh, in Icelandic, Fortnadasurgur. So th- those would be the sagas about ancient times. That's in the Icelandic saga tradition before the Viking Age. So again, sagas like uh, the stories about the uh, uh, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer fall into that category. The interesting thing about these sagas as a common literature, a genre of sagas in, in, in the Icelandic literature, is that they take place in the continent, they take place in Scandinavia, and not in Iceland. So the people who wrote it down had this knowledge that these stories are ancient, 
they're associated with the consonant, and they're farther removed from our reality. And that's why we can add a bunch of dragons and, uh, you know, dwarves and uh, also female warriors and so on and so on, right? That's how, that's how we have, um, scholarship has treated this subject uh, for a long time. It's like, oh, this fits with fantastical imagery in a saga literature that these writers knew was uh, fantastic and improbable in different ways. Of course, this also rests on the idea that, uh, oh, then there's a, a saga literature that is more uh, reality-oriented and, and maybe even just factual, which is a nonsensical idea in a sense because, you know, we, we see this in, in the, that type of literature. The, 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 the sagas of Icelanders would the primary, be the primary example. They're like, they've been heralded as some kind of like reality-oriented literature. They talk about the real life of, of, of warriors, but fantastical stuff shows up in them all the time too. You know, just like, and, and also these, uh, these silly scenes where somebody gets an ax in the head and then he goes, Oh wow, that's a nice blow. <laughs> like that. Everybody knew back then that, that that's, that's, you know, for entertainment, yeah. just like the troll in the corner is for entertainment. So, so, so we can't make that distinction, which tells us then, that the saga literature at large is both reality and, and fiction combined in different ways and on different levels. And um, what scholars of literature has been looking at is that, oh, we see in the continental Latin literature, there's this tendency to represent certain parts of Europe that are considered pagan as more fantastical. This is a, something that sort of moves from like... Greece is originally the epicenter. Um, they they start placing, a, a, you know, the Amazons, uh, the female warriors, up there somewhere in what is now perhaps modern day Ukraine or or something like that, because they don't really know much about the, the, that area. This is something that humans always do. You know, when we don't know much about an area and a people, we attribute all kinds of weird ideas to them. So, so that's really natural. This yeah. becomes a trope in literature in, in, uh, in medieval Europe, where we see this sort of uh, um, th this place where we have these female warriors moves farther and farther north. Adam of Bremen, who's sitting in Hamburg in, uh, um, in the, uh, uh, the late thousands and writing about Vikings, among other peoples, Scandinavians, he is telling us that the, you know there's a there's a community of uh, or a society of uh, 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 up in in Finland somewhere that's ruled solely by women, and again he's just replicating the trope that exists in the literature. But the interesting thing is that you know right next to that story that you know about a society ruled by women, there's also centaurs and people with dog heads and stuff like that. Typical fantastical elements. And then also what looks like more or less historically accurate descriptions of what is also going on in, in Scandinavia at the time. And uh, that seems to be the same situation with the saga literature. It includes historical accuracy and um, then also crazy stuff. Now, our question is then, well, uh, what were there actually female warriors in Scandinavia? 
and the archaeology is starting to find interesting things in that regard. Mm-hmm. We have um, figurines, and a, a great example is the so-called Holby uh, statue from Fyn in Denmark, or figurine, it's, it's very small. This one was found uh, some years ago, uh, not so long ago, and it is very clearly a, a female, I would say very clearly a female figure who is holding a shield and a sword. Uh, the figure is wearing a long robe, um, indicating perhaps a female dress. The figure has uh, long hair uh, tied up in a knot that uh, seems to be typologically a female way of uh, tying up your hair at the time. You can compare it with some of the picture stones from Gotland from the 800s. They seem to have similar knots tied um, in their hair. And um, and the, if you ask me, but that's my interpretation, of course, but if you ask me, the, the facial features look female, too. If you compare that with other um, little figurines and pendants, it kind of looks like in, in certain situations, yeah, there are females showing up with the weaponry in those depictions. That's our first uh, indication of something from the Viking Age that represents females with war gear. Our question is then, of course, are they warriors? Well, we don't know. Um, we don't have uh, anything comparable except for the saga literature, which has this complex uh, mix of fiction and reality. Um, well, then we also have uh, um, certain graves that seem to be, you know, fem- biologically females who were buried with weaponry. And the famous case is the one that showed up recently uh, from Sweden in, in, in Birka, where we have what appears to be a female who is buried with weaponry. Now, critical voices have suggested that, um, um, first of all, um, there's, there's a ambiguity, they say, uh, when it comes to the bones. They, so the grave was excavated back in the 19th century or early 20th century. So a long time ago where our methods, archeological methods weren't as good as they are now. So some have suggested that the bones have been mixed up with a male a person's uh, bones. Um, but I think the archeologists examining this grave have refuted that and they say that they know that these are exactly the bones that were in the grave. But then we also have the question of like, how do we interpret the grave as, uh, as a warrior? Now, the funny thing is, when we find a male skeleton with, uh, with war gear and stuff like that, nobody ever questions that it's a warrior, right? It's just like, oh, that's a warrior. <laughs> so that's one thing to take into consideration when people say, oh, but this female right here with that war gear, would, would she have been a warrior or... Should we question ourselves when we talk about warriors at all? Yeah, and I, like, I, I found that quite interesting when you um, you sent me the article, and I think it says in it that this grave was used as kind of like a primary source of one of the best examples of a male warrior, and then as soon as it's found that the bones belong to a female, it was oh well maybe it's not a warrior. It's like well, <laughs> hang on a minute, if yeah. We, if you're saying, you know, it's definitely a male warrior, he's one of the best examples, how can you in the same breath then refute that just because the bones are female? Like, Exactly, right? 
I mean, that's that's some of the things that might indicate that people are more, you know, stuck on an idea for different reasons, and then they try to push that through. Um, so, so when we look at it, what we have is that one grave with that fe uh, with uh, a female um, uh, skeleton uh, buried with weaponry, and then we have uh, these, you know, uh, figurines that seem to represent females with weaponry. Those are pretty good indicators that at least these Vikings back in this, uh, the Viking age had a concept of females being able to carry weapons around. So that's our starting point, right? Um, my colleague uh, uh, Lechek Gardela is uh, working on this subject in Bergen right now in Norway and finding more graves where females seem to have been buried with weaponry. So, so we're, we're getting more information about this and, and expanding our knowledge but um, but but we, I wouldn't say that uh, at this point we have reached a, a definitive final conclusion on this. Um, before, before we go too far away, can I just yeah? the 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 Burke grave? Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that bones were removed so it could have been a male warrior buried with a female, and the the, the male bones were removed? Because I've seen that that was one of the one of the arguments. Is that a possibility, or is that kind of like clutching at straws to try and place a male in in that grave? As far as I remember, that uh, grave looks uh, from the sketches that I've seen. It looks undisturbed. The bones look okay. undisturbed. Yeah. Um, it, so I think it's uh, it's it's a stretch. To suggest that it's not improbable, but um, but I uh, and I must also admit this is where I'm reaching my limit of knowledge when it comes mm -hmm. to, to archaeology. So 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 I would leave that for archaeologists to answer that question. But from what I've seen, uh, what I've heard of the discussions and so on, I don't think it's a particularly likely scenario. It would seem quite strange to remove just a, a male. Body or just the male bones? Oh, it, it seems it would seem a little bit okay. Maybe not, <laughs> yeah, dude. You have no idea the strange things that these people seem to have been doing with graves. Okay, <laughs> so <Fair enough. laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, a lot of things happened with graves and the like. Okay, for different okay. reasons. Like sometimes we see graves that have been opened and bones have been disturbed, uh, been taken out. And and placed in a bag, and you know all kinds of things. So so they they it it is likely to have happened uh, um, with this in that sense that you know the whole concept of disturbing a grave and messing around with people's bones definitely was a thing back then. So, but but I just I, as far as I know, I haven't seen anything that mm -hmm. really is, is sort of uh, um, any argument that impressed me uh, in that direction. If so. Yeah, if somebody was to go and disturb a grave, would it not usually be for the instance of taking something like the weapons that were in there, as they would be? You know, they, they, they would be valuable of value to a grave robber. Yeah, we have we have both disturbances based off grave robbery, of course, but also ritualistic disturbances. Um, we have indications of uh, people, for instance, taking swords and other items out of a grave, which are very obviously not grave robbery. So that tells us something about, you know, the mindset that these people mm -hmm. are in. 
maybe they thought that, you know, burying uh, a warrior, let's say we bury granddad uh, with his sword, and he was a great warrior. Um, then I show up later on as, uh, as his uh, grandson, and I am going to go to war. Hey, I need this, uh, uh, this weapon that he used because it has magical powers. Yeah. And he probably gained even more magical powers by lying around in the death realm in there, mm -hmm. you know, so that pro probably is part of it. And that's, that actually brings me to another uh, case, uh, uh, the case of Herver uh, from Herabara Saga of Heidrich's uh, Herver Saga. Um, she's a female warrior, shield maiden, who um, um, takes her sword, um, her granddad's sword, I think it is, Angantir, um, uh, a great warrior, buried in a burial mound. He's not particularly happy about the idea, or at least his ghost is not. But she shows up and she takes it, and then she she goes to war, right? Uh, so there's an example of uh, of this ritualistic disturbance of a grave to take an, uh, a magically charged weapon and then mm -hmm. go be a female shield maiden warrior <laughs> in the literature. So that's, okay. that could be one of those examples of uh, how the literature actually remembers these components of old traditions and rituals. And so yeah. I think, you know, it, it is very likely in that sense. Now that we've talked about the, all the complexities of the literature and the influences from Latin literature and, you know, Greek concepts that, that go far back and, and all that stuff, but it actually also seems like there might be some truth to it when these stories are talking about shield maidens. Then, of course, we have to consider how many would, would we be dealing okay. with entire societies led by women? Yeah. Are we dealing with, uh, I don't know, details of an army that are only women are, and so on? Percentages, basically. And some of the things that we can see is that, um, uh, first of all, the, the, the amount of graves that have been uncovered so far that indicate biologically females acting as warriors is, uh, is you know, there's not a lot. It's a, it's a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing to consider. Uh, secondly, actually, there, there is one, um, a, one example, archaeological example of a community that seems to have been led by women um, from Scandinavia. It's a small uh, place south of my uh, old hometown, Aarhus in Denmark, um, Randleu, it's called, where uh, I believe the cemetery indicates, the cemetery is from the Viking Age, and it indicates approximately 80% females and 20% males, which means that that that, that area uh, was predominantly females when uh, uh, they were put in the in the grave uh, in the graves uh, uh, in the Viking Age. Whatever that means, we don't know. I mean, there are many theories about why that is. Some theories are that oh, the men were off at war and never they, they came back. Maybe they were annihilated in some battle. Who knows? Um, but um, but it is interesting to consider that there is at least an archaeological example of something that looks like a society led by women. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's going back to the, the the birth grave. I think were there some little figurines found in in there um, that could suggest that she, that she may have been some sort of commander or higher authority warrior, not just 
mm-hmm. kind of an an average warrior as well. Yeah, um, and that's really quite interesting. interesting. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That ties into the talk about Valkyries, right? Because mm-hmm. Valkyries seem to be directing war in the mythology. Did they have female warriors employed for that in mm-hmm. in the Viking Age? That is a possibility, of course. Uh, it's a possibility that uh, such female warriors could have been um, ritualistic in their functions. Um, they might also have been fighting, but uh, but have had sort of like a ritualistic function in war. And this then uh, brings us to another interesting subject, and that's um, if we go all the way back to Tacitus writing about the Germanic tribes in um, in the first century AD, he seems to be indicating some of this. We have this uh, warrior sorceress or, or or a female figure of some kind called Veleda, who uh, is uh, who seems to be a, a, well running the the, the society um, among a, a certain Germanic tribe. I can't remember which one it is. I mean, it might be the Chati, but I can't remember exactly. But she's running that show right there, and she's decisive in in context of war, and all of that stuff. And and there might be have been these female leaders in some context or another. I mean, we also see this in the saga literature at large, whether it's the sagas of Icelanders or the king sagas and so on. There are prominent female figures who are definitely not to be trifled with, and they do have. Uh, some decisive power in context of uh, of violence. The the primary example is always you know if um, if some dude in in an Icelandic saga is hesitant to uh, start a fight based off of uh, their honor and and all that stuff. Well, then his wife will make sure that he does. <laughs> yeah, I think kind of throughout. There is examples of of women in positions, you know, of, of status. I mean, with the the Gokstad ship, the, the, there was the two females that were found, you know, was used as their burial ship. I don't know if you know maybe a little bit more than I do about that and, and possibly why that was or who they were. Mm. But, I mean, that's an example of of you know two women. I think was one was elderly and one was a bit younger. Mm. Who, I think I think it's the Osebeck ship you're referring to, but, none, but nonetheless, uh, still uh, incredibly high status and 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 an impressive uh, mm-hmm. ship, right? Yeah, uh, what we have there are two high status females buried in a ship uh, which is adorned, um, beautifully carved, carved in like the. I don't know the Ferrari of the time, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's not, you know, it's not a shabby little thing, is it? You, oh, absolutely. Not. I I wouldn't be be, be too bothered if that was used as my uh, burial ships. So. Right. And and an interesting thing is also, uh, you know, when we look into the construction of the ship itself, the mast is very weak, and we don't know if that is because it uh, it was built just to be a ship for burial or if, if, if there's a, if it was used for a particular way uh, uh, or for a particular purpose, mm-hmm. um, but it wouldn't be able to withstand the winds out in the North sea. 
So, okay. uh, so it, uh, either it was used as uh, if it was a functional ship, it was used in the fjords in in, uh, in close in Scandinavia, yeah. or it wasn't used at all, and it was simply built for that particular purpose. Which almost kind of exemplifies the, the, the use of it for, you know, being used for two females. Mm-hmm. If it was built just for that purpose and it being so ornate and such a beautiful thing, that kind of even lifts them up to even a higher status of mm-hmm. that you would go through the effort. You know, these must have been two really important people to go through that effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, everything in that grave indicates that uh, at least one of them, I mean, maybe both of them, were important people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we have we have so many different items, uh, uh, and again, uh, beautifully carved uh, items. Um, um, there are chests. I believe there's a sled in there, too. There's, there's, there's so much um, mm-hmm. uh, important stuff in there. And I don't know if this theory is still circulating or it has been refuted, but um, earlier there was a theory that half of the ship was actually, um, or that it was only half of the ship that was covered to begin with. So so that um, you would have the other half of the ship sort of like standing outside of the grave mound as sort of a ship that looks like it's sailing into the earth. I mean that's a okay. that's a that's a pretty hardcore display if you ask me. Like people would be able to uh, pass that and see a ship sailing into the death realm right there. Almost um, the greatest tombstone ever created. Right. <laughs> if, if that theory is true, it, I yeah. know that it has been contested um, mm-hmm. by some, but I don't know where where archaeologists and yeah. other scholars have landed on it. It's based off of a pollen analysis on uh, of the deck. That indicates that half of it uh, was uh, uh, receiving pollen um, later on, but the other one wasn't. So, so that should that might suggest that. But you know, right. there could also be other interpretations. Nonetheless, if it if it was the case, right, then you have these really important females uh, with all of this very valuable stuff, with a beautifully adorned, nicely carved ship that stands right there as a display of sailing into the death realm. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's no mean feat to, to create, is it? It's, it's, oh, no. <laughs> it's taking some effort, um, so you're not going to waste it on anybody. You know, they've got it's got to be for somebody who you hold in a particular high regard. Exactly. And then we have to, of course, uh, ask ourselves, how do we interpret that? Are we dealing with uh, some... Um, I mean, we don't know anything about uh, whether or not polygamy was uh, was something back then. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe they could be two wives of a king, um, okay. two beloved wives of a king, and the king wanted to uh, really d- display how that uh, you know the, 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 the burial. But then again, you, you you have other questions that still have like, how did they die at the same time? Uh, yeah, and uh, and such. <laughs> Um, we could also go in a different direction and say uh, this is a term uh, and, and interpret this grave as simply a, um, a, a, a powerful woman or two powerful women um, uh, who had status of their own that, that was not tied yeah. to a male figure. And then we have sort of a more um, a, a less patriarchal uh, interpretation of, of the grave in that sense. 
because the one where you know it's a man who's who's the agent who makes sure that uh, uh, these women get buried in that way uh, is a in a sense a more patriarchal interpretation mm-hmm. of the gravesite. Um, if you go the other direction, then the, the females themselves have value uh, in and of themselves and aren't necessarily tied to a male figure who instigates all of this. We don't know much about that situation. All we can uh, really say is that, well, important women were buried in a very important grave right there. Yeah, Intrinsic so can, value. <laughs> yeah, you can only take the, the facts from it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, throughout the mythology from what I've, seen there seems to be different instances of females in like powerful roles i mean the valkyries have a pretty powerful full job i mean obviously you've got somebody like lagatha or brunhild um i think i in the the taunting of thor where you've got odin and thor kind of throwing these insults to each other there's a mention of a female berserker and mm. um, so you know, you, you find these kind of things that, that come up, you would assume that they must be based on some sort of, not necessarily the truth in in the mythical, you know, that they are a mythical being in, in what they do, but but some sort of truth in that they're modelled on a, fe- a female or, or the idea of that at least a, a woman has the choice to pick up arms and fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have we have at least what appears to be a cultural concept of that. And then, of course, we have to ask ourselves: What are all the implications? Um, what are we um, like? Uh, what are the the, the 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 complications with all of this? One of the things that we see with uh, both Herver and Lagatha is that they uh, they seem to be dressing up as males when they do it. So. What that indicates is perhaps that, um, well, if you were a female who went to war, then you gave up your status as a woman in that sense, okay. the conceptual status at least. And then we're talking some kind of concept of cross-dressing, which we see in many cultures. This mm-hmm. is a very common human phenomenon that, um, that you know, um, uh, gender roles or social roles um, there's the there's the sex, which is the biological aspect of it, and then there's the gender, which is the uh, social aspect of it. And a person can, um, in many different cultures, um, transition to 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 another gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, when, but the thing is that when they do this, this comes with a lot of uh, social implications, taboo, and and a lot of rules. So, um, and, and a, a case is um, in Albania, uh, where um, um, there's been a long tradition for uh, for women being heads of households, and then they're considered patriarchs, and then they have to function as males. Um, another great example is Queen Victoria, who, mm-hmm. when you walk around England and, and you look at her st- statues, and also in Canada for that matter, uh, it says him. On them, <laughs> that's that's a that's an aspect of this gender bending too that happens. Like she wanted to take on the role as patriarch of the empire, mm-hmm. and so therefore she says, "Well, you have to refer to me as man." <laughs> okay, um, and, and it's it's a cultural thing that just happens. And of course, if you're a person of power like she was, you can define how yeah. that works, right? 
No one's um, going to argue. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and... And that, that's, that could also be the case in Scandinavia, uh, mm-hmm. back in the Viking Age. Um, but of course, you know, depending on which cultural patterns that already exist, these people will have uh, more, or they, they, will, they could have a harder time, so to speak. Okay. That really, that really depends on, you know, the attitude of the people around. When it comes to, to, to if, we, if we should go back a second to, to dressing up as a male, could that be down to the not necessarily that they want to dress a male, it's just that those clothes are almost tried and tested in that format of war. So that is almost the more comfortable or I, I can't imagine a dress would be good even if you had the choice mm. to, would be the oh. best choice for battle. Yeah, I mean, definitely, there's there's a practical aspect to this mm-hmm. as well, but I think it says a lot when somebody is buried in okay. in war gear, right? Um, because our next question is then, what about all these females who are buried as as what we could, would call a typological female uh, burial, um, both where where sex and gender correspond to one another in in, in a biological in a culturally conceptual sense. Mm-hmm. Could they have, you know, could a woman like that have um, walked around as a warrior for a period in her life and then, you know, gone back to being um, a, a woman of a household? Uh, we don't know, right? You know, yes. there's, there's also another aspect that we have to consider that I didn't touch upon when we talked about the skeletons. Um, I'm not sure about this. I don't really know much about it, but, um, but we have to question do these uh, skeletons um, show any evidence of actually having been to war? Mm-hmm. Are there damages to the bones and such things? I have no yeah. idea about that. That's, of course, an aspect to consider, too, when we talk about it in the sense of being a warrior as a profession. Yeah. yeah. But the- if nothing else, what we could say is our, our, our knowledge of it is limited. Mm-hmm. Um. We don't know if it was possible for a woman to be sort of a have a conceptually traditional female role and then uh, switch to a male one for war purposes and then come back to the female role. It's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, somebody who dies um, in that role as that warrior who's female and probably gendered male in that context well, they would be buried as as that figure, I guess. I guess maybe part of it is also what what ultimately maybe defines your life. Some may have first and foremost been kind of more feminine and, and maybe if needed would have picked up a weapon, in which case I think most people would. It, it's not a rule. It's if, if somebody is attacking your village or attacking your settlement, you do what you're going to do. It's yeah. not, you know, does that make you a warrior? I, I think, it, you know, if, you, if you're taking up arms and you, you, you're fighting for, for your life, I, you could argue it does. Mm. Um, or in some That's, cases, are you going out and choosing to not necessarily defend yourself, but then going and actively raiding yeah. and attacking and... and, and being a warrior, you know, proactively rather than 
defensively. Absolutely. That's and that's a very important point that you're raising right there. Um, you, you know, uh, <laughs> necessity uh, brings about n- new situations in life all the time, right? And I'm sure that we would expect a uh, a, a a woman in the fjord in Norway uh, to defend her village if she has to. I mean that that. Uh, I, I can't really imagine a, a, a scenario of, uh, where that wouldn't be the case <laughs> in some sense or another. Um, so that, and that's also, that this points in direction of something else that we need to consider. And that's, of course, our modern concepts of what it means to be male and female. Mm-hmm. And we have a very, uh, in many ways, constricted idea of that, um, thanks to cultural developments over the last hundred years. Um, but just... Like, let's just establish some facts uh, around this stuff. Well, we can look at the, um, the Crusades. The Crusades, um, I'm not saying there were female warriors in the Crusades. I don't know anything about that. But we do know that a crusade um, is not, you know, was not back in the medieval period the way that we think about it now. It's like just a bunch of men in, uh, in metal going off to the Holy Land to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, uh, a sort of a, a procession of men and women and children, and you had um, uh, people selling goods and a lot of different things. It was sort of a whole... Uh, village economy moving through uh, the <laughs> Europe and yeah. and the, uh, the Middle East uh, at the time, and in the same way, I mean, we see we go back to World War One, World War Two. I mean, women are involved with the war efforts there in a in a in an incredible scales. So the mm-hmm. idea of a woman who just you know hangs around in a house while her Viking uh, uh, male warrior is out fighting. And then as soon as some Vikings show up and then she screams and, and runs off with the kids, uh, I, I, yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think even, you know, in, in, if you put it in a modern aspect, like if you're backed into a corner, male or female is irrelevant. You, you do what has to be done to protect you and yours and those you love. It's, it's not a male thing, a female thing. I think it's just a, a natural impulse that there's that aspect of self-preservation, but there's also the inverse, right? Male or female, if you don't have the, um, I don't know, uh, the psychological uh, mm-hmm. makeup, so to speak, to defend yourself, then you won't. Yeah, whether it's, whether you're male or female. <laughs> yeah, it's fight or flight, and yeah. you you've either got it or you've not, and that's that's irrelevant, like you say, of of, of either way you go. Um, I think the last thing I want to ask just before we kind of like wrap up um, was one. It's just something that I kind of picked up on one of the when listening to through the sagas was the idea of of the marriage night and whether you, you could tell me whether it's true or not of that they would wait kind of three nights before consummating the marriage. And I think in the the story where where um, Freya sends for for his wife and the, he she, she says he's going to have to wait is it nine nights mm. um, and that's kind yeah. of he sees that as this unbelievable yeah un- unbelievable thing is there any, is that kind of like a, a a well known thing that you would a man would be assumed to wait three nights before consummating a new marriage because obviously 
in, in modern way with the way we look back at kind of like the med, the typical medieval times every kind of like you have to consummate that night or it's it's invalid it's it's not you know it's not seen as a real marriage so that kind of surprised me this idea that you would be expected to wait three nights yeah so so this is this is a little embarrassing because uh, my my former uh, uh, supervisor uh, <laughs> actually uh, um, uh, one of my supervisors for my my PhD is probably the expert on on medieval marriage in <laughs> in, okay. uh, in Scandinavia, but but I I I wouldn't say that my knowledge is uh, is that comprehensive that I could give you a, a similar detailed uh, go through. Of, of of the different traditions that are mm-hmm. in, uh, involved, but I mean, what it, what we know is, of course, that marriages are, ha, have always been a ritualized uh, a process, and what we what we see in in all cultures is that it involves different ideas of taboo. The important thing about a marriage is that uh, we have two kin groups who uh, through those individuals that are being married are uh, combining resources in in some sense or another in a Scandinavian context and particularly in the Icelandic context what we have is a transfer of of uh, duties that have to do with honor right uh, aside from of course also resource sharing so that means then that uh, people um, in different ways, depending on status and and gender, um, become liable for each other's honor. So, if you have two families on the, uh, of the same status, who where uh, male and female um, uh, become uh, conjoined in marriage, then uh, the female uh, the female's uh, uh, kin group is uh, um, sort of uh, responsible for for supporting the male kin group. Mm-hmm. And, and this comes with privileges and also with, um, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with the sort of rules that you have to follow that you might not always be particularly happy about. Okay. Uh, so um, so that's, that's an aspect to take into consideration. That's always the basis for a marriage. That's, that's the sharing of, uh, of resources and the fact that you can join um, uh, responsibilities, in a sense, this doesn't always work out. The sagas are the greatest example of this, you know, of how it actually doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But it's the principle of it, and and yeah, it, that that is a ritualized process. It's not just something you shake on. You don't just shake your hand and that's it. Um, there would have probably been a period in um, in the beginning. Um, where you're waiting uh, for different reasons, mm-hmm. um, we have to make sure. Since we are, since we becoming so reliant upon each other, we have to make sure uh, be, upon each other. We have to make sure that we um, are actually aligned and we can trust each other. That might be part of that waiting period. Yeah, I as, guess. As, I guess maybe if it's almost an arranged marriage in the sense of it's it's a you know, political reason mm-hmm. that the, they may not know each other. So maybe those few days grace kind of allows you to to know if, the, you know, is this 
what I really want, or is this something that? Yeah, can... the cultural codes. Like, consider this: if if theoretically there was a waiting period of three days, or maybe a week, or or nine days, whatever, um, after you've had the wedding party where the two families uh, meet each other for the first time and everybody is involved, that you can use that waiting period to deliberate over uh, whether or not somebody uh, fell, uh, f- followed the cost- customs at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, at that feast, did somebody do something egregious? Did somebody do uh, something great? You know, those kinds of things could be involved in that regard. But what I want to say about the story um, of Freyr and Gerder um, and that waiting period that you're referring to right there, that one is is a very um, is a very peculiar case because first of all, a, I'm not sure we're talking about marriage. Um, most uh, most scholars have noted that it is not a love union, and it is not an equal union. Those are some of the things to take into consideration. We have the Godfrey who is literally um, explicitly horny. That's what that is in the beginning of the story. Uh, He does not fall in romantic love. Um, The second thing that happens is that he then sends his servant Skirsnir to woo her, and woo is uh, put in quotation marks. Because what does he do? He shows up and he offers her gold. She's not interested and then he starts telling her that he's going to kill her family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's not wooing. That's coercion. <laughs> yeah. It's not the, the madly falling in love tale. Because I think sometimes maybe these things are changed to appease modern times almost. Oh, yeah. you know, if, you, if you listen to the Neil Gaiman Norse mythology book, when he tells the story, you can tell it's been altered slightly to appease that kind of like modern principles. Like it's, he go, you know, he goes and convinces her after a period of time. It doesn't go into the details of, you know, the offering of money, the threats. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and another thing you have to consider is also translations. Neil Gaiman, I'm not sure that he knows Old Norse, so he might not <laughs> ever have been able to actually read it in its, uh, in its original form. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you, for instance, see with the saga literature is a lot of translations, especially into English, but also the, uh, other languages, also the other Scandinavian languages, are actually, uh, uh, you know, you, they weed out all the, the nasty stuff, uh, uh, stuff that has to do with sex, because there's a lot of that in there, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are sagas, uh, I think, is it Lux de la Saga, I think, uh, might have, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's that one if it's another one, but there's one saga that begins with somebody, some woman complaining about the size of her uh, husband's penis. You know, it's just <laughs> in there. And that, that was fine for those people to write down back then. Yeah. They had a different concept of these things. So, so, so when you see a lot of this material being translated in the Victorian era or the early 20th century, all that stuff about penises is weeded out. <laughs> and that's the same for a story like this one with uh, Freyr and Gerdr. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, when she refuses also, even when he's uh, threatening the lives of her family members, her father and brother, um, the next thing that happens is then that he curses her and he takes away her fer- fertility. 
Yeah. That's the interesting thing. He's, he says that he's turning the gods and the elves against her and says that she'll live in hell, I think it is, with a, what is it, a nine-headed or three-headed uh, uh, ogre and drink goat piss. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and all this was, uh, that was a strange one. Right? It's kind of strange, but then again, it makes sense in this mm -hmm. magical universe that they're yeah. dealing with. Because he also wields a, a um, sort of like a Harry Potter-like magical wand. Um, <laughs> he, he says that he has this magical wand, and now he's cursing her with it. And that might be the real, uh, uh, the real thing that we're dealing with here, uh, that this story uh, is perhaps maybe a story about uh, the fertility of landscape. Gerder does mean uh, it, it, the field enclosure um, the arable land. And and uh, Freyr is a fertility deity. He's also a deity of kings. Um, so it, it it has been interpreted as is a an expression of royal ideology, of taking over land, um, and maybe also in an agrarian context of making land arable. So so maybe it actually doesn't have much to do with a wedding as such. Um, but a more of a sort of divine wedding with the land rather than two people. Mm -hmm. So, so that might explain a little bit about these, uh, these curious, uh, um, aspects of it. And then, of course, then we're asking ourselves, well, does that waiting period relate to an actual waiting period in context of a wedding or does it have some kind of like implications for, uh, making land arable or useful or something like that, that's hard to tell. But if it is, you know, in context of a wedding, then, yeah, we, we have these explanations that, yeah, waiting periods might be a good idea for mm -hmm. uh, social reasons, uh, taboo reasons, magical reasons. You have to consider we're also yeah. living, living in a magical worldview here, right? So yeah. people... They, 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 they have ideas. They have curious ideas, you know. Um, just go back to the uh, medieval remedies for all kinds of ailments, you know, especially in England. Um, there's, there's way too much um, rabbit feces in some of those potions. <laughs> <laughs> You're just wondering what, what is going on right there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a good uh, point to end it on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the simple point is simply just you, you don't always understand the logic yeah. that is happening, right? Well, it's a different time, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's different time, different cultures. So you can only take kind of so much from it. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a good time to, to wrap it up. I think the last, the last thing we probably should just touch on is the pronunciations that you use. Obviously, ignore my pronunciations. <laughs> they are terrible. Hopefully, mine will get better listening to you. But obviously, you, you, you were saying before that you used the old Icelandic. Yeah, modern, modern Icelandic actually. Um, so, so we have two in in the, uh, the scholarship of the, of the old Norse language. There, there are two camps. Um, and there's the there's the one that prescribes using modern Icelandic pronunciation, and then there's the one that prescribes the reconstructed old Norse pronunciation. Um, but in, in, in effect, the, the differences aren't that great. And um, uh, like, for instance, the, the A that has the little accent over it um, in modern Icelandic is pronounced au, 
and in in uh, the reconstructed old Norse, it's a, it's a long a, it's like an ah sound, and and yeah, we can you know linguists will go back and forth on what is most appropriate. I I was taught uh, old Norse by Icelanders, so so I adhere to that tradition. Um, that that's the way that I've I've learned it, and and to me it's 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 not you know that incredibly important uh, if if I sound exactly like um, a guy from the 1100s. <laughs> yes, I think the main thing is that it's it's not necessarily there's a right way and a wrong way. I mean, there obviously is a wrong way the way that I say it. But <laughs> when it comes to to, to, to scholars in that you guys, even amongst yourself, you have your own different ways of saying certain things. And it's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that you use slightly different. Yeah, there are different traditions. And I, and I don't think the, uh, you know, the, 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 the common way of uh, pronouncing these things in sort of an anglicized version is, is particularly wrong either. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, when you're a scholar in this field, you're expected to, know, understand, and, and, and be able to work with the Old Norse language. Um, but, but, you know, when you're, when you're a lay person who's just interested in all of this stuff, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any problem in, uh, in using a, uh, a, uh, a, a pronunciation that comes from, uh, from, from the language that, that is your primary language. I mean, after all, um, Old Norse literature might come from the Nordic world, but it's it's part of world literature, so it's something that we can all enjoy. And um, you know, just because the the Icelandic uh, way of pronouncing things will twist your tongue in weird ways, yeah. it doesn't. It shouldn't uh, discourage you from from being interested, right? Yeah, I think hopefully something like this will help with that as well, because it's hard enough trying to get your head around the mythology at the best of times, let alone if you were to, when you pick up a book and attempt to read it, especially being, you know, just a primary British speaking person, I have little to pretty much no understanding of any other language. So when I look at, you know, some of the the words and the, the names of people, the names of places, and you see these different letters that, that don't exist in our language, let alone the sounds. Mm-hmm. So that adds like an extra level of confusion to trying to learn because you can't even kind of fathom how to say some of the words in your own head, let alone then try and understand everything else. So I think hearing how they are said, at least people then when they do their own reading kind of will go, okay, well, that's how it was said. So even if they kind of sort of pronounce it the same way, yeah, they've at least got something in their head that they can strap to that visual and go right. Well, that makes it a little bit easier going yeah. forward. Yeah, hopefully it helps. Um, but then again, I mean, uh, personally, I I, I feel like um, if that's something when you're reading, if if that's something that confuses you, then gloss it over. Just go <laughs> and then, then that's go what on I do. From there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> because, what I've been doing. It's been all these different kind of noises have been going on. I'm just like, I have no idea. <laughs> Some of them, I'm just like, oh, I'm not even going to try. And and that is very understandable. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's so impressive when I see you just kind of roll them off your tongue. I'm like, 
what well i mean i, I mean i sometimes i also make mistakes i just realized that i uh, in one of the videos i had made i i was uh, i added an extra syllable to uh to an Icelandic uh, place name and uh, you know that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not an Icelandic native speaker, so mm-hmm. so you know, I mean, I also sometimes make make mistakes and and so on. But that's how language works, you know. Yeah. Um, it is language seems daunting um, when when you look at it from the outside, but at some point, you know, uh, you also become familiar with it, and 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 ultimately, language is a you know a, a it's it's. It's just a, a tool to communicate, and if if things work out, then that's fine, you know. Even with mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and um, so we've discussed the Shieldmaidens, the Valkyries. We've gone into depth on the Brunhild, and it's been a fun one. It's been educational. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed it as well. And you'll be back for the next one.